Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. There is a place where time stands still. Where nature is harsh and demanding. Where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. I want And good morning, it's Annie for Showreel, and we are going to look at Australian film as it presents itself, how people uh, interact with it, how film is made and also what are the latest uh, films that are being made. And at the moment we've got a great film that's going to come up on uh, your screens at the Palace at uh, Nova. It's uh, Gillian Armstrong's latest film called The Women He's Undressed. It's a documentary, a very amusing documentary. starts on July the 16th on cinema screens. It's about Ori Kelly, who is a three-time Academy Award winner for costume. He's responsible for that extraordinary set of clothing that... Uh, uh, were worn in uh, Some Like It Hot, for example, with Marilyn Monroe, the dress that was almost not a dress, and uh, some of those amazing clothes that uh, Bette Davis wore, and also uh, Barbara Stanwyck. Uh, very interesting fellow, very amusing account of his life, and also of the uh, history of that period. Anyway, I got a chance to talk to Gillian Armstrong, which was great, and we're going to listen to my chat with Gillian over the next half hour but also next week as well because she shared a lot of time and uh, she's a fascinating person. Okay let's start. I was fascinated by uh, learning a bit about your early history. We'll start with uh, being one of the 12 first people to go into the uh, film and television school. Well the I mean I'm actually and I'll say this as a Melbourne girl I am um, I'm actually I went to Swinburne originally, which is now VCA. Um, the film course moved from Swinburne to VCA. I did a four-year diploma of film. Um, I'm actually I, – I'm very well film-schooled. I was a very, very slow learner. Um, anyway, so after a, a five months of unemployment trying to get a job, I ended up an assistant editor and I, I had a great awakening out in the real world that actually it's a privilege to work on something that you care passionately about. You know, there are many – jobs that in film or media that um, we all do to pay the rent but actually to be that I realise it's a very special thing to work on something that's yours and personally yours and your piece of self-expression. So then I saw the ad at the end of my first year out as a paid assistant editor for the first year of the National Film and Television School. Um, at that point, the only film course in Australia had been Swinburne where I went um, and I 
realised that uh, there was so much that I needed to learn, that I had a great time at Swinburne, but I could have learnt a lot more if I'd been a bit more focused. And I was really, really focused, so I applied. Um, Basically, it was a one-year course. It was sort of perfect timing for where I was in my development and my beginning of a career um, because you had to be, I think, just under 25, you had to have already made films. It was sort of like a post-grad director's course. It was to be specifically for directors. We had to have already made some short films and they interviewed people from all over Australia. And I remember going to the interview and I said, I only want to come to this school if we can make films because and work with actors um, because I know that's what I need to do and that's how you learn. I've done all the theory. I've seen the history of world cinema I just want to make films. And I was lucky enough to be one of the 12 who were chosen. I think they had thousands of applicants because it was the first film school, in a national film school in Australia. There'd been nothing in New South Wales. Um, and amongst the other students in that year were Philip Noyce, um, who went on... Candidate Paris? No, no, that's Peter Weir. Oh, no, Peter Weir. Um, Phil did um, Newsfront. Oh, yeah, that's And right. um, he's now um, living and working in Hollywood and he's done like Clear and Present Danger. And he did Rabbit Proof Fence. Um, Chris Noonan, who did Babe. Um, uh, so, yes, we were – and the others have uh, diversified. Graham Shirley has ended up a film historian. Um, the only other girl, Robin Murphy, ended up working um, – because her interest was in – political films um, and she ended up working for um, for society but actually not in film. So, no, it was a fantastic year. I was so lucky. Made three films in that one year and my first film there was 100 a Day um, by Alan Marshall, uh, which um, really opened so many doors to me because it won um, all sorts of awards for everybody on the team. I, th- I think I've seen the other two. One was... Uh one about a relationship between a woman and a, a man who was a drug addict. Is that was that your film? No, I did um, One Hundred a Day, um, which I think you can see at Acme. You know where you go and see um, directors' short films online. Um, I did uh, my second film was called Saturday Night, which was um, semi documentary, semi drama, which was about a gay man Saturday night, and I was the, we were the first crew to ever film in a gay dance. Um, and then the last film was the Hal Porter short story Gretel, which was selected and run at the Sydney Film Festival. Oh right, okay, good. So, uh, and then uh, you, you, that group of people obviously shoot, shoot it, shot high because uh, basically the Australian. Is it true to say that the Australian film industry really didn't exist? Well, the Australian film industry didn't exist when I went to Swinburne. I mean, when I went to Swinburne to study film and TV, basically your options in Melbourne were to either work at Crawford's, who, you know, they're doing Homicide and um, the other, you know, a couple of police shows. Um, or ABC TV, who were really the only people doing drama. Um, so the big change and the thing that helped our industry um, start again, because we had a fantastic industry right. here in the 1930s and 40s, was that there a decision was made um, by John Gorton's government to fund uh, um, and help promote Australian film industry. And they set up the Australian Film Commission with um, investment for short films and for feature films. And that was really, you know, it was Fred Skepsy, Peter Weir, Bruce Beresford, who were the first to do features and literally happened as I was coming out of film school, which was 
one of those sort of amazing pieces of luck. My, you know, my only dream was that maybe one day I could be at the ABC holding a script, working on a drama. So mm. no one thought that we'd be making feature films, all feature films that would go all around the world. And uh, in fact, you were uh, the first female to make a feature in Australia for 46 years or so, something of that nature. I was. There were three sisters in the 30s, the McDonough sisters, um, who uh, one was the star, um, one was the producer and one was the writer-director. And they made um, uh, feature films in the 30s. Um, But after that, uh, yes, there were no no women at all directing. I was, yep, so when I... Did my brilliant career as the first woman to direct a feature in whatever mm. it was, 46 years. And before we get on to that, I, I would like to ask uh, something about your actual uh, training as a director. The, the way you make films, it's, uh, uh, it's quite original, I think. The, that's one of the reasons for why you're so successful, because it, you feel like you're in safe hands and uh, it's enjoyable and amusing to watch the films oh, that you make. That's how good. I feel about them. And you also uh, make... a. You do it in a way that is quite original. Uh, it comes from an original mind. And I was going to ask you, uh, did uh, that early experience with your, with your father, who was in, terribly interested in photography, did that have uh, any influence uh, in developing your skill at framing? Um, I think uh, – I actually think that it's a gift, Um I, I can see I can see it in other directors' work. I can just see whether or not they've got an eye. Um, so I would say I've inherited the gift from my father. Um, his hobby was photography. He was passionate about photography. Um, he was taking photos and developing. He had a home um, darkroom was actually at the back of the office, the real estate office in Mitcham, and he taught uh, my brother and sister and I all to. Um, print our own photos but you know when you look I mean the 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 interesting thing is now with um if you're on um, some sort of thing like Instagram you see people's images and there's just some people that have an eye and I think that you know I was lucky I mean I was which showed you know when I was a young I was good at art and so on so and my mother I've got to say actually who she was a primary school teacher but she did what lovely drawings and things so there there was that um in our family. So I always knew I wanted to head somehow in some form into a career that had something to do with art. And it's interesting too because, uh, I mean, he was he was doing it as a hobby. He had to make a living and he did it as a hobby. But you actually went one step further and was able to step over the line into the art world and make it your living. So I know. And my father... Um, was very encouraging about that, and he admitted that um, he, he it would his would have been his dearest wish to have done have have been a photographer or or been someone you know writing copy and so on. Um, he had to go into the family business. There was a lot of pressure on him, and his passion was not in selling houses. His passion was always in the photography. Because in later years, um, he. Put all he managed to use all his talents as he worked for the Kiwanis and his he did um, you know photos to help publicize causes and charities and um, the funniest story was that 
they he was working with Wynne Leighton Girls Home and they had a whole um, um, theory about trying to lift the girls' sense of self-esteem and they felt that having photos of themselves, was a lot of them did, had nothing. And so my father ended up taking photos of all the girls and he used to boast, he, and his little joke was like, I've got more of my photos up at Pentridge, which is where the girls' boyfriends were, you know, than any other photographer in Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> That's really sweet. In fact, a hugely important historical record, I would have thought, by this stage. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's right. Now, uh, if you th- look at um, the uh, My Brilliant Career and, in fact, other projects that you've worked on, you go back to uh, literature. You go back to find great stories in the past. Tell me about that. Well, I think – I mean, I. It is about storytelling in the end. You know, yes, it's important, the frame, but in the end you take an audience on a journey and the story is the most important thing of all. Um, you know, whether – and it doesn't have to be a great story from the past. It can be a story from the present, you know, over in the, over the years of the films that I've made. Um, yes, there's been My Brilliant Career in Little Women, but there's also been High Tide, which is a contemporary story, and Helen Garner's wonderful Last Days of Shane And the documentaries, in the end, for a feature documentary to work, like Women He's Undressed, the film I've just made, it it has to be structured like a drama. Um, You've got to take the audience on a journey. You know, you you don't expect them just to come in and sit there with a whole lot of dry facts. Um, You want to, you know tease them and take them on the journey and make them laugh and make them emotionally involved, um, it's really just the same as as if it was a great novel. Yeah, and the thing that's interesting with uh, the uh, women he's undressed is that you definitely decide to uh, incorporate that uh, theatrical nature by introducing a actor to play uh, Ori Kelly on his journey. Yes, it was a big dilemma. We... Uh, had very little footage of Ori and very few photos, and because he's very ugly. Well, oh, well physically I think he, ugly. He had a certain sort of charm, um, and I think he he did make up for for with a great wit, and that oh, was sort and of his personality and yeah. his talent, and and of course and talent. So that was a, the the um, challenge that I had when I had Catherine Thompson, who's a screenwriter and playwright involved right from the beginning. Um, we both researched it and then had to. F- discuss how do we tell his story in a way that is engaging, that does make you care about him. We don't want a narrator saying, you know, dryly, he had a great wit. We want you to hear the sort of things that he would say and how he would react. And so in the end, not having, you know, hours and hours of footage because people didn't interview costume designers and keep archival footage of them talking about their lives and their thoughts, um, we created... Um, some, a number of scenes with many of the real words that we found in articles or letters and so on that that were felt very very ory. Yeah, yeah, and, and also very much of the period that he came from. At 17 seconds after 8:15, on the clear bright morning of August 6, 1945, an atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, Japan. August 6th and 9th mark 70 years since the U.S. atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which claimed more than 200,000 lives. Join the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, ICANN, for Australia's first ever screening of the extraordinary 1953 film Hiroshima. Thursday, August 6th at 6.30, Collide Theatre, Melbourne. Bookings at icannw.org.au. 
Proceeds support ICANN's work to ban and eliminate the 15,000 nuclear weapons that exist in the world today. ICANN is a 3CR supporter. And you're on 3CR with Annie on Showreel. And we're having a chat with uh, Gillian Armstrong, that preeminent Australian filmmaker who's just released a film called uh, The Women He Has He's Undressed, about Ori Kelly, uh, um, an Australian who hit it big in uh, the golden uh, years of Hollywood in that early period. Extraordinary fellow, great film, really amusing, I'll have to say. And, of course, Gillian Armstrong herself is very interesting. So uh, we were able to have a chat with Gillian. Her film, uh, The Women He's Undressed, opens on July the 16th, so get along and have a look at it. But uh, continue with our chat with Gillian. We're going to uh, play the second half of this chat uh, next week, so uh, it was very uh, amusing, as as I said, including uh, stories about her past filmmaking, but also the uh, new film that she's now just released. It seemed to me that there was a, a personal dimension to choosing Ori Kelly. It, it's quite clear that Ori Kelly is a great person to choose because uh, he is uh, he really punched above his weight. He came out of Australia. He, he do, did beautiful work. In fact, his he work did. informed the fashion of uh, the West glamour world it did. forever. It did. You it know, if you think me. about it, we are um, so often influenced by the movies and by, by what the, you know, the – the female icons and male icons. I mean, yeah. don't forget Humphrey Bogart in that trench coat. A trench coat before that was an army jacket. That's People right. didn't wear, wear them in in streetwear. So, I mean, he was magnificent. This man, Ori he was. He, he genuinely was. was. And uh, but uh, in a way, do you think that there were the the attraction wasn't just his magnificence, but the fact that there was a parallel between your experience as a filmmaker from Australia and your connection to Hollywood and his connection to Hollywood. You guys both have something to say that you could relate to? Oh, well, definitely. I did think, and I should say that the whole idea for the film was my producer's Damien Perra, whose father won the very oh, first. Oh, Damien Perra, is he actually related to the photographer? Uh, yes, that's his father. So he, he's Damien Perra Jr., and his father won the very first Academy Award for his Kokoda film in 1945. So it was it was Damien who... who came up with the whole idea of doing a film about Ori. He discovered Ori when he was looking at the names of other famous Australians who'd won Academy Awards. And after a number of years of fiddling around with the thought of doing this project, Damien, who's a producer of um, film and TV in his own right, came to me. Um, you know, mutual friends said, what about Jill Armstrong? She occasionally does documentaries between features and she loves art and design. She did the one on Florence Broadhurst. So that's how, how it came to me. But now I've digressed and not answered your key question. Yes, so my invo- emotional involvement. Yes, well, it was a number of things in the end. Um, one, I did think, well, I, I can tell this story because I too have lived and worked in Hollywood and so I understand the perspective. So even, you know, when you go online, there's so much misinformation about Ori. And some of the um, costume historians who'd written about him, say, 10 or so years ago, had said things about, you know, he, he offended people with his sharp tongue and so on. And I thought, well, maybe it was just that... You spoke to the wrong people? He's Australian, you know. He, he's got an Australian sense of humour that... Um, 
that quite often uh, they don't get in LA. They don't get the satirical sense of humour, which is interesting because New Yorkers are so sharp and dry. Um, so, I mean, I think that was that's the sort of thing that because I'd been there and I'd sometimes found that I'd had to say to the blank look at me or the hostile look, that was a joke. Um, so I, I could see Ori's perspective. And then I absolutely understand and understood things like, you know, we found I mean, Warners keep all the paperwork. You can go there if you're researching. They have boxes on each film. So so we started pulling out the boxes on, say, Casablanca to see what – and there were all the memos from the studio head saying things like, oh, you know, her, her, she, her feet look too big in those shoes and, and all, all the comments. And I – having worked in the Hollywood system, know that that's, that's what it's like. You know, you have um, incredible pressure uh, from all these vice presidents and executives about everything, about, you know, who you're casting. And, I mean, I remember we had notes about Diane Keaton's earrings after the first night's rushes from one of the executives in L.A. Didn't like her earrings. Um, and so I understood the sort of pressure that he was also under, that he would be – always about, you know, trying to make people look pretty and nice and safe and so on. So I can I could see why he and Betty Davis became such a team because she really was quite brave in her choices of roles and quite brave in not wanting to always just look glamorous. She took on roles where she was meant to be the ugly duckling or that, you know, there was a scene where, I mean, she would really say, well, for the story in this scene, I think I should just look as, you know, as simple as possible and not distract. Um, and there was always that pressure on from the studio thinking about selling. That It's always about, you know, how do we sell? And they're always worried about Betty because she wasn't a conventional beauty. Um, so I think that in Ori, she found a fellow fighter and someone else who, like her, really believed in telling the story and telling the story with authenticity. This also uh, intrudes into the uh, another stream in your filmmaking, which is the representation of women. And uh, I noticed that there's correlations like My Brilliant Career, which really was uh, a film that uh, really set your trajectory and the stars in your film at Betty... Uh, um, Judy Davis. Judy Davis and Sam Neill really um, made a splash as well. But um, that's uh, – uh, um, and Little Women, both of these films, uh, uh, these films were taken from books that were milestone, key milestones in the representation of women in Western literature, which I assume is also uh, relevant to you in your filmmaking about representation of women. Yes, though you do know that I actually turned down Little Women and the producer chased, chased me for nearly a year because I felt, well, I've done that. I mean, I, as a filmmaker and storyteller, I'm not just a polemicist. I'm not just here to endlessly, endlessly tell you something about, you know, women suffered and women struggled and yes, women yes, yes. should be independent. I felt like um, I did that in my brilliant career and there are – I would hope – Which you did. Yes, but I didn't, then everyone thought that's all the only story I ever wanted to tell. I was sent, then sent, you know, every story about a female achiever, the first oh, woman right. to fly a plane, the first woman to climb a mountain, you know, and I was just like, hang on a second, like I'm a storyteller and I'm interested in human behaviour and it's not just about women. Um, I've had, you know, 
stories with wonderful male characters. Um, if you think of Oscar in Oscar and Lucinda, um, but I got put in a box, and I, which I wasn't that thrilled about. Of course, you know I'm care about women's roles, and but not necessarily in this word strong that the women have to be strong. What I want the women to be is rich and complicated, and um, not just. Um, always hanging off a man's arm. I mean, Which is what Bette Davis was doing too. She was fighting for complicated roles and I actually hadn't really known of her films until I started this huge research for Women He's Undressed because I had to – I thought in the beginning, I thought, oh, well, I'll just fast forward through the films and choose the dresses that look like look interesting. But the, I ended up watching all the films. Yeah, they're very complicated, aren't they? And they're wonderful and really great stories. I mean, I did say to um, I ran into David Stratton somewhere, and I said, "You know, all those years where you said that there were there were better roles for women in the golden age of cinema." I said, "Now I've seen them. You're right." Mm. Barbara Stanwyck is just a standout, and and Barbara Stanwyck in Babyface. Ooh, that's like that's just unbelievable. Unbelievable. They would make yeah. a film like that with a main a female character now because I slept away to the top. Yeah, you know. Uh, yeah, no, um, because I lived in the country and uh, they used to show old movies during the summer. I, I actually seen an awful lot of these movies. <laughs> they used to be, I remember um, they were on midday movie and I'd yeah. sometimes, you know, see that my mother would be watching and yeah. so on. But, but I'd sort of seen bits and pieces but never really sat down and saw them all from beginning to end. Friend, yeah. yeah, and I, I I'm really was so impressed that they're, that what you know to go and I mean the letter the William Wyler film and 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 what a director he was he was so ahead of his time I mean just the opening three shots um, were fantastic you know there's a really long shot this incredible crane and and like the whole mood and as Leonard Moulton says in our documentary um, you know it is one of the best openings of a film and to have a female star at the very beginning of the film shoot a man point blank and then. We're with her throughout the story and we know she's lying. She's lying to her husband and so on. And and then you think, well, when have I seen a film, a contemporary film like that? You know, apart from some of the great HBO drama, you know, you could say, well, Robin Wright Penn and House of Cards, you know, is is like that. But we're not, we haven't been seeing them in the movies. No, no, no. Um, And those early films like Babyface were incredibly brave. I mean, I didn't realise, I mean... It, it was not only criticised because, you know, how dare a woman be immoral? I mean, she didn't – She and they had to redo the end because crime's not allowed not to allowed pay. pay. Yeah. Um, but also that well, they were horrified that her best friend she, – she, she left Pittsburgh, left town with the black maid. They both escaped her hideous father and and they were – and as she – you see the, the maid as well as the, both of their costumes change and they become wealthier and so on. And that was – also considered not done that her her best friend was was a black was black yeah Yeah, was black fascinating isn't it I mean it obviously tells you an awful lot about the contrivance of real life compared to the history that is received Mm. Um, the uh, interesting there's a couple of other correlations that are interesting about your most recent film which is that uh, my brilliant career it was it was uh, nominated for best costume. Um, at the it time. was, yeah, yeah. Luciana Righi, who did the costumes, was nominated. So you obviously yes. have a eye for costume. You see it as being so incredibly relevant to the vocabulary of a film. Oh, I, I definitely. And I actually have had um, 
uh, Colleen Atwood, who's in Women Who's Undressed, she's been Tim Burton's costume designer and, and she did, amongst other films, um, um, Edward Scissorhands. She, oh, wow. she, she designed Little Women and was nominated for an Oscar for costume. Um, so I have worked with some wonderful designers. Yeah. Um, that, that was one of the strengths of this particular film, uh, the, uh, the Women He's Undressed, uh, that you actually uh, give... Uh, some understanding to the general audience and I should imagine for people who aspire to be costumers and also people who actually do costume, you actually give room for them to actually explain what it is they do. Yes, no, well, we we thought um, part of telling Ori's story, um, it was important to actually know, I mean, to understand how good he was. You had to understand what he was doing. Um, so it was, uh, we managed to get some wonderful costume designers talk about the art of costume design and what they do. Amongst them, Catherine Martin, this, the Australian designer, um, Colleen Atwood, who did Edward Scissorhands, Chicago and Little Women for Me, and um, Michael Wilkinson, who a lot of people may not know his name, but last year when Catherine was actually nominated for Gatsby, I mean, if you think about it, that year, there are, Every year there's only four people nominated for costume design. Well, that year two of them were Australian. Michael Wilkinson, who also went to NIDA and did costume design, and Catherine, who went to NIDA and did costume design, were both nominated. Um, Michael was for American Hustle. Oh, right. And he's um, doing film after film now. And he's, he said he feels like he is following Ori's footsteps because he did the same thing. He'd, he'd worked here um, and then decided to um, take the plunge and, and he went to New York as well and now he's he's like going from strength to strength. Now you have been listening to Annie me speaking to Gillian Armstrong about her, her career but also about her latest film which is starting in Australian cinemas on July the 16th, The Women He's Undressed. Fabulous uh, story about a, a fabulous Australian uh, costumer who won three Academy Awards, Ori Kelly, worth going to see. Uh, we'll hear the rest of my interview with Gillian Armstrong next week. Coming up next is Published or Not. We'll go out with Mia Dyson, Make a Stand. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.